0: Section 0. Preface to The Golden Bough, Volume 1, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 1, by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org, recorded by Leon Harvey. Preface. When I originally conceived the idea of the work of which the first part is now laid before the public in a third and enlarged edition. My intention merely was to explain the strange rule of the priesthood or sacred kinship of Neme, and with it the legend of the Golden Bough, immortalised by Virgil, which the voice of antiquity associated with the priesthood. The explanation was suggested to me by some similar rules formerly imposed on kings in southern India, and at first I thought that it might be adequately set forth within the compass of a small volume, but I soon found that in attempting to settle one question I had raised many more, wider and wider prospects opened out before me, and thus, step by step, I was lured on into far-spreading fields of primitive thought which had been but little explored by my predecessors. Thus the book grew in my hands, and soon the projected essay became in first a ponderous treatise, or rather a series of separate dissertations loosely linked together by a slender thread of connection with my original subject. With each successive edition, these dissertations have grown in number and swollen in bulk by the accretion of fresh materials, till the thread on which they are strung at last threaten to snap under their weight. Accordingly, following the hint of a friendly critic, I decided to resolve my overgrown book into its elements, and to publish separately the various disquisitions of which it is composed. The present volumes, forming the first part of the whole, contain a preliminary inquiry into the principles of magic and the evolution of the sacred kingship in general. They will be followed shortly by a volume which discusses the principles of taboo and their special application to sacred or priestly kings. The remainder of the work will be mainly devoted to the myth and ritual of the dying god. And As the subject is large and fruitful, my discussion of it will, for the sake of convenience, be divided into several parts, of which one, dealing with some dying gods of antiquity in Egypt and Western Asia, has already been published under the title of Adonis, Attis, Maceris. But while I have thus sought to dispose my book in its proper form as a collection of essays on a variety of distinct, though related, topics, I have at the same time preserved its unity as far as possible by retaining the original title for the whole series of volumes and by pointing out from time to time the bearing of my general conclusions on the particular problem which furnished the starting point of the inquiry it seemed to me that this mode of presenting the subject offered some advantages which outweighed certain obvious drawbacks by discarding the austere form without i hope sacrificing the solid substance of a scientific treatise i thought to cast my materials into a more artistic mould and so perhaps to attract readers who might have been repelled by a more strictly logical and systematic arrangement of the facts. Thus I put the mysterious priest of so to say, in the forefront of the picture, grouping the other sombre figures of the same sort behind him in the background, not certainly because I deem them of less moment, but because the picturesque natural surroundings of the priest of among the wooded hills of Italy, the very mystery which enshrouds him, and not least the haunting magic of Virgil's verse, all combined to shed a glamour on the tragic figure with the golden bell which fits him to stand as the centre of a gloomy canvas by a trust that the high relief into which he has been thrown in my pages will not lead my readers either to overrate his historical importance by comparison with that of some other figures which stand behind him in the shadow or to attribute to my theory of the part he played a greater degree of probability than it deserves even if it should appear that this ancient Italian priest must after all be struck out from the long roll of men who have masqueraded as gods, the single omission would not sensibly invalidate the demonstration which I believe I have given, that human pretenders to divinity have been far commoner and their credulous worshippers far more numerous than had been hitherto suspected. Similarly, should my whole theory of this particular priesthood collapse, and I fully acknowledge the slenderness of the foundations on which it rests, its fall would hardly shake my general conclusions as to the evolution of primitive religion and society, which are founded on large collections of entirely independent and well-authenticated facts. Friends versed in German philosophy has pointed out to me that my views of magic and religion and their relations to each other in history agree to some extent with those of Hegel. The agreement is quite independent, and to me unexpected for i have never studied the philosopher's writings nor attended to his speculations as however we have arrived at similar results by very different roads the partial coincidence of our conclusions may perhaps be taken to furnish a certain presumption in favour of their truth to enable my readers to judge of the extent of the coincidence i have given in an appendix some extracts from hegel's lectures on the philosophy of religion The curious may compare them with my chapter on magic and religion, which was written in ignorance of the views of my illustrious predecessor. With regard to the history of the sacred kingship, which I have outlined in these volumes, I desire to repeat a warning which I have given in the text. While I have shown reason to think that in many communities sacred kings have been developed out of magicians, I am far from supposing that this has been universally true. The causes which have determined the establishment of monarchy have no doubt varied greatly in different countries and at different times. I make no pretense to discuss or even enumerate them all. I have merely selected one particular cause because it bore directly on my special inquiry, and I have laid emphasis on it because it seems to have been overlooked by writers on the origin of political institutions who themselves, sober and rational according to modern standards, have not reckoned sufficiently. With the enormous influence which supposition has exerted in shaping the human past but i have no wish to exaggerate the importance of this particular cause at the expense of others which may have been equally or even more influential no one can be more sensible than i am of the risk of stretching an hypothesis too far of crowding a multitude of incongruous particulars under one narrow formula of reducing the vast nay inconceivable complexity of nature and history to a delusive appearance of theoretical simplicity. It may well be that I have erred in the direction again and again, but at least I have been well aware of the danger of error, and have striven to guard myself and my readers against it. How far I have succeeded in that, and the other objects I have set before me in writing this work, I must leave to the candour of the public to determine. J. G. Fraser, Cambridge, 5th December 1910. Preface to the first edition of the Golden Pow For some time I have been preparing a general work on primitive superstition and religion. Among the problems which had attracted my attention was the hitherto unexplained rule of the African priesthood. The late spring it happened that in the course of my reading I came across some facts which combined with others I had noted before suggested an explanation of the rule in question. As the explanation, if correct promised to throw light on some obscure features of primitive religion, I resolved to develop it fully, and detaching it from my general work to issue it as a separate study. This book is the result. Now that the theory, which necessarily presented itself to me at first in outline, has been worked out in detail, I cannot but feel that in some places I may have pushed it too far. If this should prove to have been the case, I will readily acknowledge and retract my error as soon as it is brought home to me. Meantime, my essay may serve its purpose as a first attempt to solve a difficult problem, and to bring a variety of scattered facts into some sort of order and system. A justification is perhaps needed of the length of which I have dwelt upon the popular festivals observed by European peasants in spring, at midsummer, and at harvest. It can hardly be too often repeated, since it is not yet generally recognised, that in spite of their fragmentary character, the popular superstitions and customs of the peasantry are by far the fullest and most trustworthy evidence we possess as to the primitive religion of the Aryans. Indeed, the primitive Aryan, in all that regards his mental fibre and texture, is not extinct. He is almost up to this day. The great intellectual and moral focus which have revolutionised the educated world have scarcely affected the peasant. In his inmost beliefs is what his forefathers were in the days when forest trees still grew and squirrels played on the ground where Rome and London now stand. Hence, every inquiry into the primitive religion of the Aryans should either start from the superstitious belief and observances of the peasantry or should at least be constantly checked and controlled by references to them. Compared with the evidence afforded by living tradition, the testimony of ancient books on the subject of early religion is worth very little. For literature accelerates the advance of thought at a rate which leaves the slow progress of opinion by word of mouth at an immeasurable distance behind. Two or three generations of literature may do more to change thought than two or three thousand years of traditional life. But the mass of the people who do not read books remain unaffected by the mental revolution wrought by literature, and so it has come about that in Europe, At the present day, the superstitious beliefs and practices which have been handed down by word of mouth are generally of a far more archaic type than the religion depicted in the most ancient literature of the Aryan race. It is on these grounds that, in discussing the meaning and origin of the ancient Italian priesthood, I have devoted so much attention to the popular customs and superstitions of modern Europe. In this part of my subject, I have made great use of the works of the late W. Manhart, without which, indeed, my book can scarcely have been written. Fully recognising the truth of the principles which I have imperfectly stated, Manhart set himself systematically to collect, compare, and explain the living superstitions of the peasantry. On this wild field, the special department which he marked out for himself was the religion of the woodman and the farmer. In other words, the superstitious beliefs and rites connected with trees and cultivated plants by oral inquiry, and by printed questions scattered broadcast over Europe as well, as by ransacking the literature of folklore, He collected a mass of evidence, part of which he published in a series of admirable works, but his health, always feeble, broke down before he could complete the comprehensive and really vast scheme which he had planned, and at his too early death much of his precious materials remained unpublished. His manuscripts are now deposited in the university library at Berlin, and in the interest of the study to which he devoted his life, it is greatly to be desired that they should be examined, and that such portions of them... As he has not utilized in his books, should be given to the world. Of his published works, the most important are first two tracts, Roggenwolf and Roggenhund, Danzig, 1865, second edition, Danzig, 1866, and die Corner Berlin, 1868. These little works were put forward by him tentatively in the hope of exciting interest in his inquiries and thereby securing the help of others in pursuing them but except from a few learned societies, they met with very little attention. Undeterred by the cold reception accorded to his efforts, he worked steadily on, and in 1875 published his chief work, De Bornkultus der Germanen und Eker nach Barstam. This was followed in 1877 by Antike Feldkolt. His Mythologisch for Schangen, a posthumous work, appeared in 1884. Much as I owe to Manhart, I owe still more to my friend, Professor W. Robertson Smith. My interest in the early history of society was first excited by the works of Dr. E. B. Taylor, which opened up a mental vista undreamed of by me before. But it is a long step from a lively interest in a subject to a systematic study of it, and that I took this step is due to the influence of my friend, W. Robertson Smith. The debt which I owe to the vast stores of his knowledge, the abundance and fertility of his ideas, and his unwearied kindness can scarcely be overestimated. Those who know his writings may, from some, though a very inadequate conception of the extent to which I have been influenced by him. The views of sacrifice set forth in his article, Sacrifice, in the Encyclopaedia Britannica, and further developed in his recent work, The Religion of the Semites, mark a new departure in the historical study of religion. An ample trace of them will be found in this book. Indeed, the central idea of my essay, The Conception of the Slain God, is derived directly, I believe, from my friend. But it is due to him to add that he is in no way responsible for the general explanation, which I have offered, of the custom of slaying the god. He has read the greater part of the proofs of circumstances, which enhance the kindness, and has made many valuable suggestions, which I have usually adopted. But except where he is cited by name, or where the views expressed coincide with those of his published works, he is not to be regarded as necessarily assenting, to any of the theories propounded in this book. The works of Professor G. A. Wilkin of Leiden have been of great service in directing me to the best original authorities on the Dutch East Indies, a very important field to the ethnologist. To the courtesy of the Reverend Walter Gregor M.A. of Pitzlego, I indebted for some interesting communications which will be found acknowledged in their proper places. Mr Francis Darwin has kindly allowed me to consult him on some botanical questions. The manuscript authorities to which I occasionally refer are answers to a list of ethnological questions which I am circulating. Most of them will, I hope, be published in the Journal of the Anthropological Institute. The drawing of the golden bough which adorns the cover is from the pencil of my friend Professor J. H. Middleton. A constant interest and sympathy which he has shown in the progress of the book have been a great help and encouragement to me in writing it. The index has been called by Mr. A. Rogers of the University Library, Cambridge. J. G. Fraser, Trinity College, Cambridge, 8th of March 1890. Preface to the second edition of The Golden Bell. The kind reception accorded by critics and the public to the first edition of The Golden Bell has encouraged me to spare no pains to render the new one more worthy of their approbation. While the original book remains almost entire, it has been greatly expanded by the insertion of much fresh illustrative matter drawn chiefly from further reading, but in part also from previous collections which I had made and still hope to use for another work. Friends and Correspondents, Some of them, personally unknown to me, have kindly aided me in various ways, especially by indicating facts or sources which I had overlooked, and by correcting mistakes into which I had fallen. I thank them all for their help, of which I have often availed myself. Their contributions will be found acknowledged in their proper places, but I owe a special acknowledgement to my friends, the Reverend Lorimer Fison and the Reverend John Roscoe, who have sent me valuable notes on the Fijian, and Waganda customs, respectively. Most of Mr. Fison's notes, I believe, are incorporated in my book. Of Mr. Roscoe's, only a small selection has been given. That whole series, embracing a general account of the customs and beliefs of the Waganda, will be published, I hope, in the Journal of the Anthropological Institute. Further, I ought to add that Miss Mary E. B. Howitt has kindly allowed me to make some extracts from a work by her on Australian folklore and legends, which I was privileged to read in manuscript. I have seen no reason to withdraw the explanation of the priesthood of Africa, which forms the central theme of my book. On the contrary, the probability of that explanation appears to me to be greatly strengthened by some important evidence, which has come to light since my theory was put forward. Readers of the first edition may remember that I explained the priest of Africa, the king of the wood, as an embodiment of a tree spirit, inferred from a variety of considerations that, at an earlier period, one of the priests had probably been slain every year in his character of an incarnate deity. But, for an undoubted parallel to such a custom of killing a human god annually, I had to go as far as ancient Mexico, now from the Metrodom of St. Decius, unearthed and published a few years ago by Professor Franz Gourmont of Ghent and Elector Boilandiana. Volume Sixteen, eighteen ninety-seven. It is practically certain that in ancient Italy itself, a human representative of Saturn, the old god of the seed, was put to death every year at his festival of the Saturnalia, and that though in Rome itself the custom had probably fallen into disuse before the classical era, it still lingered on in remote places, down at least to the 4th century after Christ. I cannot but regard this discovery as a confirmation, as welcome as it was unlooked for, of the theory of the Aresian priesthood, which I had been led independently to propound. Further, the general interpretation which, following W. Manhart, I had given of the ceremonies observed by our European peasantry in spring, at midsummer, and at harvest, has also been incorporated by fresh and striking analogies. If we are right, these ceremonies were originally magical rites, designed to cause plants to grow, cattle to thrive, rain to fall, and the sun to shine. Now, the remarkable researches of Professor Baldwin Spencer and Mr. F.J. Gillen, among the native tribes of Central Australia, have proved that these savages regularly perform magical ceremonies for the express purpose of bringing down rain and multiplying the plants and animals on which they subsist, and further, that these ceremonies are most commonly observed at the approach of the rainy season, which in Central Australia answers to our spring. Hence then, at the other side of the world, We find an exact counterpart of those spring and midsummer rites which our rude forefathers in Europe probably performed with the full consciousness of their meaning, and which many of their descendants still keep up, though the original intention of the rites has been to a great extent, but by no means altogether forgotten. The harvest customs of our European peasantry have naturally no close analogy among the practices of the Australian Aborigines, since these savages do not till the ground. But what we should look for in vain among the Australians we find to hand among the Malays. For recent inquiries notably of Mr. J. L. van der toorn in Sumatra and of Mr. W. W. Skeet in the Malay Peninsula have supplied us with close parallels to the harvest customs of Europe. As these latter were interpreted by the genius of Manhattan, occupying a lower plane of culture than ourselves, the Malays have retained a keen sense of the significance of rites, which... Europe have sunk to the level of more or less meaningless survivals thus on the whole I cannot but think that the course of subsequent investigation has tended to confirm the general principles followed and the particular conclusions reached in this book at the same time I am as sensible as ever of the hypothetical nature of much that is advanced in it it has been my wish and intention to draw as sharply as possible the line of demarcation between my facts and the hypothesis by which I have attempted to collocate them. Hypotheses are necessary, but often temporary bridges built to connect isolated facts. If my light bridges should sooner or later break down or be superseded by more solid structures, I hope that my book may still have its utility and its interests as a repertory of facts. But while my views, tentative and provisional as they properly are, thus remain much what they were, there is one subject on which they have undergone a certain amount of change. Unless intended, it might be more exact to say that I seem to see clearly now what before was hazy. I meant the relation of magic to religion. When I first wrote this book, I failed, perhaps inexcusably, to define even to myself my notion of religion, hence was disposed to class magic loosely under it as one of its lower forms. I have now sought to remedy this defect by framing as clear a definition of religion as the difficult nature of the subject and my apprehension of it allowed. Hence I have come to agree with Sir A.C. Lyell and Mr. F.B. Jevons in recognising a fundamental distinction and even opposition of principle between magic and religion. More than that, I believe that in the evolution of thought, magic is representing a lower intellectual stratum has probably everywhere preceded religion. I do not claim any originality for this latter view. It has been already plainly suggested, if not definitely formulated by Professor H. Oldenburg in his able book De Religion des Vida, and for aught I know it may have been explicitly stated by many others before and since him. I have not collected the opinions of the learned on the subject, but have striven to form my own directly from the facts, and the facts which bespeak the... The priority of magic over religion are many and weighty some of them the reader will find stated in the following pages but the full force of the evidence can only be appreciated by those who have made a long and patient study of primitive superstition i venture to think that those who submit to this drudgery will come more and more to the opinion i have indicated that all my readers should agree either with my definition of religion or with the inferences I've drawn from it, is not to be expected. But I would ask those who dissent from my conclusions to make sure that they mean the same thing by religion that I do, for otherwise the difference between us may be more apparent than real. As the scope and purpose of my book have been seriously misconceived by some courteous critics, I desire to repeat in more explicit language what I vainly thought I had made quite clear in my original preface. This is not a general treatise on primitive superstition but merely the investigation of one particular and narrowly limited problem to it the rule of the Arisian priesthood and that accordingly only such general principles are explained and illustrated in the course of it as seems to me to throw light on that special problem if i'd say little or nothing of other principles of equal even greater importance is assuredly not because I undervalued them in comparison with those which I have expounded at some length but simply because it appeared to me that they did not directly bear on the question I had set myself to answer no one can well be more sensible than i am of the immense variety and complexity of the forces which have gone towards the building up of religion no one can recognise more frankly the futility and inherent absurdity of any attempt to explain the whole vast organism as a product Of any one simple factor. If I had hitherto touched, I am quite aware, only the fringe of a great subject, fingered only a few of the countless threads that compose the mighty web, is merely because neither my time nor my knowledge has hitherto allowed me to do more. Should I live to complete the works for which I have collected, and am collecting materials, I dare to think that they will clear me of any suspicion of treating the early history of religion from a single narrow point of view. But the future is necessarily uncertain, and at the best many years must elapse before I can execute the full plan which I have traced out for myself. Meanwhile, I am unwilling by keeping silence to some more of my readers under the impression that my outlook on so large a subject does not reach beyond the bounds of the present inquiry. This is my reason for noticing the misconceptions to which I have referred. I take leave to add that some part of my larger plan would probably have been completed before now. Were it not that out of the ten years which I have passed since this book was first published, nearly eight, have been spent, by me, in work of a different kind. There is a misunderstanding of another sort which I feel constrained as a right, but I do so with great reluctance, because it compels me to express a measure of dissent from the revered friend and master to whom I am under the deepest obligations, and it has passed beyond the reach of controversy. In an elaborate and learned essay on sacrifice, El Annie Sociologique, Duxayam Ani, 1897-1898, Messrs. H. Hubert and M. Moss have represented my theory of the slaying god as intended to supplement and complete Robertson Smith's theory of the derivation of animal sacrifice in general from a totem sacrament. On this, I have to say that the two theories are quite independent of each other. I never assented to my friend's theory, and so far as I can remember he never gave me a hint that he assented to mine. My reason for suspending my judgment in regard to his theory was a simple one. At the time when the theory was propounded, and for many years afterwards, I knew of no single indubitable case of a total sacrament, that is, of a custom of killing and eating the totem animal as a solemn rite. It is true that in my totemism, and again in the present work, I noted a few cases, for and all, of solemnly killing a sacred animal, which, following Robertson Smith, I regard as probably a totem, but none even of these four cases included the eating of the sacred animal by the worshippers, which was an essential part of my friend's theory, and regard to all of them, it was not positively known that the slain animal was a totem. Hence, as time went on, and still no certain case of a totem sacrament was reported, I became more and more doubtful of the existence of such a practice at all, and my doubts are almost hardened into incredulity, when the long-looked-for rite was discovered by Messrs. Spencer and Gillen, in full force among the Aborigines of Central Australia, whom I, for one, must consider to be the most primitive totem tribes as yet known to us. This discovery, I welcomed, as a very striking proof of the sagacity of my brilliant friend, whose rapid genius had outstripped our slower methods and anticipated what it was reserved for subsequent research positively to ascertain thus from being little more than an ingenious hypothesis the totem sacrament has become at least in my opinion a well-authenticated fact but from the practice of the rite by a single set of tribes it is still a long step to the universal practice of it by all totem tribes and from that again it is a still longer stride to the deduction their form of animal sacrifice in general, these two steps I have not yet prepared to take. No one will welcome further evidence of the wide prevalence of a totem sacrament more warmly than I shall, but until it is forthcoming shall continue to agree with Professor E.B. Tyler that it is unsafe to make the custom the base of far-reaching speculations. To conclude this subject, I will add that the doctrine of the universality of totemism, which Mrs. Hubert and Morse have implicitly attributed to me is one which i have never enunciated or assumed and that as far as my knowledge and opinion go the worship of trees and cereals which occupies so large a space in these volumes is neither identical with nor derived from a system of totemism it is possible that further inquiry may lead me to regard as probable the universality of totemism and the derivation from it of sacrifice and the whole worship both of plants and animals i hold myself ready to follow the evidence wherever it may lead by the present state of our knowledge, I consider that to accept these conclusions would be not to follow the evidence, but very seriously to outrun it, and thinking I am happy to be at one with Messrs Hubert and Morse. When I am on this theme, I may as well say that I am by no means prepared to stand by everything in my little apprentice work, Totemism. That book was a rough piece of pioneering in the field that till then has been but little explored, and some inferences in it were almost certainly too hasty. In particular, there was a tendency, perhaps not unnatural in the circumstances, to treat as totems, or as connected with totemism, things which probably were neither the one nor the other. If I ever republish the volume, as I hope one day to do, I shall have to retrench it in some directions, as well as to enlarge it in others. Such as it is with all its limitations, which I have tried to indicate clearly, and with all its defects, which I leave to the critics to discover, I offer my book in its new form as a contribution to that still youthful science which seeks to trace the growth of human thought and institutions in those dark ages which lie beyond the range of history. The progress of that science must need to be slow and painful, for the evidence, though clear and abundant, on some sides is lamentably obscure and scanty on others, so that the cautious inquirers, every now and then, brought up sharp on the edge of some yawning chasm across which he may be quite unable to find a way. All he can do in such a case is to mark the pitfall plainly on his chart, and to hope that others in time may be able to fill it up or bridge it over. Yet the very difficulty and novelty of the investigation, coupled with the extent of the intellectual prospect which suddenly opens up before us whenever the mist rises and unfolds, the far horizon constitute no small part of its charm. The position of the anthropologist of today resembles, in some sort, the position of classical scholars at the revival of learning. To these men, the rediscovery of ancient literature came like a revelation, disclosing to their wondering eyes a splendid vision of the antique world, such as the cloistered student of the Middle Ages never dreamed of under the gloomy shadow of the minister and within the sound of its solemn bells. To us moderns, a still wider vista is vouchsafed. A greater panorama is unrolled by the study which aims at bringing home to us the faith and the practice, the hopes and the ideals, not of two highly gifted races only, but of all mankind, and thus at enabling us to follow the long march, the slow and toilsome ascent of humanity from savagery to civilization. And as the scholar of the Renaissance found, not merely fresh food for thought, but a new field of labour in the dusty and faded manuscripts of Greece and Rome. So in the mass of materials that is steadily pouring in from many sides, from buried cities of remotest antiquity, as well as from the rudest savages of the desert and the jungle, we of today must recognise a new province of knowledge, which will task the energies of generations of students to master. The study is still in its rudiments, and what we do now will have to be done over again and done better with fuller knowledge and deeper insight by those who came after us. To recur to a metaphor which I have already made use of, we of this age are only pioneers, hewing lanes and clearing in the forest where others will hereafter sow and reap. But the comparative study of the beliefs and institutions of mankind is fitted to be much more than a means of satisfying an enlightened curiosity and of furnishing materials for the researches of the learned. Well handled. It may become a powerful instrument to expedite progress if it lays bare certain weak spots in the foundations on which modern society is built. If it shews that much, which we are wont to regard as solid rests on the sands of superstition rather than on the rock of nature, it is indeed a melancholy, and in some respects thankless task to strike at the foundations of beliefs, in which, as in a strong tower, the hopes and aspirations of humanity, through long ages have sought a refuge from the storm and stress of life yet sooner or later it is inevitable that the battery of the comparative method should breach these venerable walls mantled over with the ivy mosses and wild flowers of a thousand tender and sacred associations at present we are only dragging the guns into position they have hardly yet begun to speak the task of building up into fairer and more enduring forms the old structures so rudely shadowed is reserved for other hands, perhaps for other than happier ages. We cannot foresee, we can hardly even guess, the new forms into which thought and society will run in the future. this uncertainty ought not to induce us from any consideration of expediency or regard for antiquity, to spare the ancient moulds, however beautiful, when these are proved to be outworn. Whatever comes of it, wherever it leads us, we must follow truth alone. It is our only guiding star, signo vinces. To a passage in my book it has been objected by a distinguished scholar that the church bells of Rome cannot be heard, even in the stillest weather on the shores of the Lake of Nemi. In acknowledging my blunder and leaving it uncorrected, may I plead an extenuation of my obduracy, an example of an illustrious writer. In Old Mortality, we read how a hunted covenanter Fleeing before Cleveland House's dragoons, here is a sullen boom of the kettle drums of the pursuing cavalry borne to him on the night wind. When Scott was taken to task for this description, because the drums are not beaten by cavalry at night, he replied in effect that he liked to hear the drums sounding there, and he would let them sound on so long as his book might last. In the same spirit, I must boldly say that By the lake of Nemi, I'd love to hear, if it be only in imagination, the distant chiming of the bells of Rome, and I would fain believe that their airy music may ring in the ears of my readers after it has ceased to vibrate in my own. J. G. Fraser, Cambridge, 18th September, 1900 End of section 0 Preface